You're listening to the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast with Joris Brion. Hey, this is Joris of the E-Commerce Excellence Podcast. And today I'm really excited to talk to Scott Bins. Uh, Scott, he's a serial e-commerce entrepreneur and author, and he founded Realtruck.com back in 1998. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, like centuries ago almost. Uh, he started in his basement and uh, he grew the company to an impressive uh, 100 million uh, in sales. Um, the company received numerous customer service, best place to work awards, uh, had a lot of fun uh, doing it. And um, he's also been an adjunct professor at the University of Jamestown, an investor in several tech startups. He published a book, Principles to Fortune, which we're going to uh, talk about. And um, he's currently the lead rebel at Red Headed Rebel. Wow, that's quite an impressive bio. So I'm sure this will be a great episode. Uh, Scott, welcome to the podcast. To be honest, I'm honored to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. Um, yeah, maybe just to get started, I'd, I'd love for you to tell uh, a bit about your background. Where did you come from? How did you get started in e-commerce? So um, I guess how I, I'm from originally from Minot, uh, North Dakota, and I graduated from alternative school there. And then I went to college there at Minot State University uh, and got a degree in uh, economics had a, got a job with uh, Western Wireless during the uh, cellular boom of the uh, early 90s and when we were selling brick phones and then I wound up working for a manufacturer who made a pickup cover that rolled up and we would the, 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 the way to sell that product at the time was you would go to trade shows, sport shows, egg shows, home and garden shows, a lot of trade shows. Mm. And you'd roll the cover on a pickup up and down all day long. And you, that's how you would sell them and find dealers, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought there had to be an easier way to do this. So a buddy of mine, um, uh, we put together an uh, advertisement to put it on TV. And we ran the commercial on TV and trying to drive business to dealers in an area. And it seemed to work. And we thought, what if we put that video online could we sell the uh, product and so that's how real truck was born it was meant to be kind of a prototype for brick and mortar stores um to that i would essentially give them the website if they wanted to put up some of the products that uh, i was selling for various manufacturers at the time and uh that they were selling through the brick and mortar store and that's kind of how real truck got going and i was terribly unsuccessful at convincing them they should sell online but real truck kept growing nonetheless and started in my basement and then you know got bigger and um it's kind of at that time there was a lot of you were submitting to directories and you know trying to rank on ask jeeves and some of the uh you know a lot of state directories and that's kind of how you'd get known and we drop shipped everything from the start to the uh, and, uh, where we would, uh, but anyway, that's kind of how we got going and we didn't really know what we we're doing. And I think back on it, it's crazy that, uh, all of the people that had the resources, you know, your brick and mortar stores and your wholesalers at that time of pickup accessories, they had the people, they had the product, they had the resources, they had the money. At that time, I was just running a little manufacturer's rep firm that we represented various pickup accessory manufacturers and set up dealers for them in a given area. So it was me and another salesperson that worked for me. 
And um, that's kind of how we got going. I eventually sold the rep firm. And um, as Real Truck began to grow, and even as it was growing, I would go to these brick and mortar stores and try to convince them they needed to be selling online. And if they were interested, they would put whoever had the least authority at that business to do anything, they would be in charge of their e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And so needless to say, uh, most of the e-commerce and pickup accessories was started by people that weren't traditionally uh, had a brick or mortar store or a wholesaler or that type of thing. Anyway, that's probably a long explanation, but that's kind of how it got going. A lot of right time, right place, dumb luck, and a willingness to um, do it, even though people said things like, nobody's going to buy a pickup cover for $400 online if they've never seen it. Seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we ignored that. And of course, a couple of years later, then it would be no one's going to buy $1,000, whatever, unless they've seen it. And yada, yada, yada. And now, of course, uh, you can buy a tractor online. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, I, I mean, it, it may have been dumb luck at the, the, the right, as, as you say, like the, the, the right timing as well. But uh, it wasn't dumb luck that you grew the company from zero to 100 million per year, of course. So can you break that down, how it went over the years? Because obviously it went over a, a couple of years. So what, what did you do and, and what was the impact? Well, initially, we're just selling and online. We're adding products and kind of getting familiar with the space. At that time, I would have characterized us as a, a truck accessory store that that sold online. Then over time, um, after I had hired a friend of mine, Jeff Danny Lanningham, um, who was better at marketing than me and uh, a bunch of other things, but... He had said, hey, you know, you shouldn't be paying attention to people who are selling pickup accessories online because they don't know what they're doing. You should be, we should be paying attention to companies that are really good at e-commerce that aren't in our space. And so we started, of course, obviously looking at Amazon and a Musician's Friend and uh, com- uh, companies that really did well in their space and kind of evolved what I would classify. We were an e-commerce company that just happened to sell truck accessories. Right. And then, you know, probably, and we grew and it was really cool and we hit a million in sales and then 2 million and then 4 million and 6 million. And in, I think 2007, we're at like 8 million when the gas prices went through the roof and sales were cut in half and we were really worried that we are going to be hurt. But that year we even kept growing. And then I went, I think it was, at that time, I started shaving my head if we hit goals. So we'd mm-hmm. set up some big, hairy, audacious goals, courtesy of the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. And I think it was where we got that. And um, started really reading a lot of books about work culture at that time and started to move towards trying to focus on the culture of the workplace more. And of course, our first attempt to kind of do it, we wrote up, up some guiding pr- or, uh, core values, put them on the wall. A year later, nobody knew what they were even. And so we took another crack at it. But that's really when it started to grow. But before that, I think we probably got to about 12, 12 million or so in sales. And then once we really started, um, I sent out an email asking everybody in the company what their personal values were that they tried to live by. 
got that information back. And then Jeff and I, Justin Deltner at the time, wrote what became the guiding principles at Real Truck. So the six guiding principles, deliver more, transparency rocks, improve, take risks, include fun, be humble. And we introduced them to the company one at a time where we'd really focus on it. And of course, the big, hairy, audacious goal was um, if we get 25 million in sales, that I'll shave my head. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we didn't think we would get to it anytime soon, but boom, the next thing you know, we're at 25 million and then 42 million and then 60 million. And then um, when I sold, and then I sold, and of course, the company went over 100 million. I don't know how big it is today. Um, a lot bigger than a hundred million, I think, but um, I don't really know. Um, and but uh, what really kind of was the the game changer was just really focusing on uh, work culture and mm-hmm. running where we were making decisions based on our guiding principles. And of course, it was always a work in progress, so we weren't perfect at it. But um, that was kind of what, and our attitude was at that time. You know, we went from pickup accessory store selling online, e-commerce company that happened to, to sell truck accessories to a company that we're on a mission to make people's lives better. Um, oh, and by the way, we sell pickup accessories. Yeah. And, right. so, uh, and we would do a lot of fun things like we'd run ads that would say we sell pickup accessories and bacon and we're all out of bacon and mm-hmm. we would you know, do that kind of stuff where uh, we tried to create a lot of memorable experiences where people focused a lot on managing our expectations so we would under-promise, over-deliver. Mm. I think like, so, the, what you're saying here is that the big accelerator of your growth was was focusing on, on culture, right? That was right. when everything changed. Was it like a particular moment? Was it just by reading those books or was there another event that triggered that aha moment, like, okay, we should focus on, on culture. Well, um, Jeff gave me the book, uh, Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. And so that kind of probably sparked it. But prior to that, it was like, we were on this endless pursuit of more, more product lines, more employees, more, 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 more. And it was kind of like, for what? Like, why? why does real truck exist? And so that question, you know, I kind of wanted to be useful and um, I wanted to help people in my life. And it just seemed like all we were like was like more, that was our mission more. Mm -hmm. And I wanted the company to have a higher purpose and kind of got inspired, inspired with this idea of being on a mission to make people's lives and vehicles better. And we're going to do it by practicing our guiding principles. And that's kind of what, sparked it where you know even though it, you know at that time we we're probably seven eight million in sales and it was really cool right because mm-hmm. uh, you know i started in a trailer park right so I, I was a poor kid and so it was really cool to be kind of growing this company and but there was also this side of it that was like um i didn't necessarily just want the mission to be uh, or to be that hey you know we're uh number one on line just so um scott benz can get rich if that makes sense i wanted to to have a greater purpose to have impact on people's lives you know people spend 40 hours a week or or more sometimes working might as well have a good time doing it right Mm -hmm. and uh, and take care of people along the way and so 
we tried to deliver more to our customers, our employees, and our business partners. So rather than negotiating with UPS by twisting and breaking arms and threatening, we just tried to be really, you know, ask questions like, hey, what can we do to be a better business partner? Yeah. Where are we falling short? What we, what can we do better? And we did that with employees, with customers, and learned those things and kind of kept kept evolving. And, um, you know, the best way to grow your business, in my opinion, is to have your customers talking about you and have your yeah. employees talking about you. And if you're doing a good job of taking care of your customers, they're going to talk about you. And again, that gets back to managing expectations. At that time, the internet was everybody had best price guarantees and and uh, shipping, and they would um, over-promise delivery dates and wouldn't fulfill them. And so we kind of did it differently. We just like, we didn't advertise hassle-free returns because we all kind of like, what return isn't a hassle? Like, there's no hassle-free returns. So stop mm-hmm. advertising. And and then with our shipping, if we knew a product shipped in a day on the website, we would put two days. So we would always ship sooner than we said. Mm-hmm. 95% of the people would get a, uh, a memorable experience because it, they'd, they'd get an email and it'd be, oh, it shipped a day sooner than expected. Versus if you say two days and it ships in two days, it was supposed to. Plus, then you also run the, the, the risk of, shipping in three days and then your customer remembers that you don't ship when you say you're going to. And so, um, and then we did things to kind of try to deliver more to customers where we would, uh, send them postcards. Uh, we always call it swag. Sometimes we'd send them fuzzy dice unexpectedly. We tended to do like, instead of advertising, Hey, get some fuzzy dice. If you buy 200 bucks worth of stuff, we would just, Hey, if someone bought 200 bucks worth of stuff, send them from, fuzzy dice after the fact or a real or a cool shirt or something like that where we yeah. presently surprise it for them. Um, anyway. What, what, what I love about the, the entire approach is that it really sets you apart from all other e-commerce companies, but because I mean, there aren't that many ways to compete in, in e-commerce, right? I mean, there's price, but that's obviously not always a, a, a good way to do it. Or uh, maybe you can have like, I don't know, the biggest product range or fastest shipping, a handful more things, but that's about it. And and those can easily be copied. And then you're just like the others in the market and, and culture or the guiding principles, ours, that, that's that's a totally different game. And I think you um, do a great job in the book, uh, in your book, Principles to, to Fortune. Uh, I mean, it's an absolutely amazing book. It, it, it's about culture. And I know it puts people sometimes off, like culture for some people, it, it's too fluffy, but it's not fluffy at all. It's it's straight to the point, and and you can almost start implementing stuff right away. And it's full of examples of how how you guys um, uh, yeah implemented those principles in, in a very practical way. So that that's something that really um, inspired me when when uh, reading uh, the book. But um, how how do you start this exercise? I mean, you described it in. in uh, in the book, and you already mentioned that you did the first attempt with hanging the, the, some principles uh, up on the wall that didn't really work. How how should someone get started with this? Um, Every business is a little bit different depending on what you're doing. So obviously, if you're in aerospace, you might have something, one of your values about precision and accuracy. Um, in the case with, with us, I just knew that like people oftentimes have great personal values, but 
sometimes have trouble practicing them at work. So what can we do to empower them to practice their own values or to help them line up with the values that we wanted as a company? So first, we got everybody's personal values and kind of mapped them to six guiding principles. Then we started asking questions around them. So an example is our first one is deliver more. So we went to every department, every employee and said, you know, like, there's three things we wanted to deliver more on to our employees, to our business partners and to our customers. And so we started asking questions around, where are we not delivering more to our customers? How can we deliver more to our customers? How can we deliver more to our business partners? Where are we falling short? Like, where are we not delivering more? And got all that information and, and kicked it out. And then part of our, one of our guiding principles was include fun and also be humble where uh, the aspect of part of being humble is uh, passing on credit you know, praising others. And uh, where the company, when someone would catch someone practicing a guiding principle, they would shout them out for it in person or we had a you know private Facebook page. Uh, for that and give them like a button or a swag. And so it kind of happened, but we in- incrementally and we weren't, um, and then and we weren't like shooting for the moon for perfection that we're a work in progress mm-hmm. and we're going to learn as we go. And so um, obviously uh, part of the deliver more was we wanted to kill status quo. Um, transparency rocks that guiding principle was really about open and honest communication if you think about the people you're closest to in the world or the people you can have the most open and honest relationship with and it's hard to grow a business if everybody's playing poker um and so we started to um really work on that on having better communication and open and honest communication um and like I said, it was kind of a work in progress. And we always like, we were for uh, periods of two months at a time, we would always focus on one guiding principle a lot. I mean, we're mm-hmm. trying to practice all of them, but we would, and we just kept kind of repeating that and getting better and better at it. Yeah. And um, I, I think you mentioned a lot of, of examples how those, um, Guiding principles also really help you in your decision making. I mean, that's the whole purpose of it, right? And and uh, by the way, I like the fact that you call them guiding principles rather than values because, uh, yeah, I, probably too fluffy for many people the, the word values. But anyway, um, but some of the the examples that you mentioned in, in your book um, are decisions that you've taken that might be a little bit difficult, probably. Like I I remember one example where you that you mentioned in the book that says like, okay. Uh, we're going to stop uh, reporting individual sales numbers from uh, customer service uh, reps. Um, we're going to change another one, like the, the, the pop- most popular sorting option is going to be really the most popular and not the one uh, that has the highest margin uh, or the coupon codes, uh, best price guarantees. Those are things that could, well, just stopping, uh, stop giving the coupon codes and the best price guarantees and, and also the hassle-free return thing that you mentioned earlier. Um, I mean, those are things that... Um, could hurt your sales, but still you, yeah, you applied those principles. Was that an easy decision? Well, I think those were work in progress decisions. Like, Mm -hmm. so, you know, when you asked how we could deliver more to our customers, we got all sorts of feedback. One of the feedbacks was, Hey, you know, offer more sales. Another feedback, what might've been, 
you know, uh, ship faster, yada, yada, yada. Well, how does, how does coupon codes, for example, tie into our guiding principle? Is it delivering more? Well, jumping through hoops, is that delivering more to customers? I don't know. Um, and then, um, is it, if you have, like in the, in pickup accessories, there's a big chunk of them that have minimum advertised price programs or unilateral pricing program, so you can't discount that. Mm-hmm. So if 30% of the items we sell, you can't discount, that means if you give someone a coupon code, 30% of the time, it's not going to work. So we looked at that, like if you have a best price guarantee, and then you have a eight-page legal document you have to read with its exceptions to the rule, it's probably not a very good uh best price guarantee. And like in our case on the best pricing, we just figured, well, was it Walmart, Amazon? Well, like we were, we were too small of a business to like manage always having the best price or the mm-hmm. lowest price. We wanted to be priced competitively and offer really good service. You can't get high at service. Um, and um, if you're getting the rates of motel six, Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of looked at what kind of customers we want to have. We want people that want, we want customers that, that want a good experience that um, don't want kind of a no nonsense sale, no, no uh, hoops to jump through, no legal documents to read, to make a purchase, uh, no weird exclusions. And so we just tried to price up appropriately. And, you know, some of those, examples like with the coupon codes uh you know again if you if you go to a company and they advertise 10 percent off site-wide and then you throw something in the cart and it has the item you've added has an exclusion what do you that leaves a negative that's not delivering more to a customer so that was easy you follow me mm-hmm. yeah and uh, the um with the, you know, like, again, with this, you know, oftentimes in the spirit of profitability, sometimes people make bad decisions. So, like, our sorting at that time was you'd sort by uh, bestseller, but mm-hmm. bestsellers, the background coding was for what we made the most money on, which the developer that did it, you know, had, I suppose he was thinking that this, hey, this is helping the company. But the reality of it was that's not transparent to our employees, our customers. And so we need to figure out what is, if, if you're going to have a sort by bestseller, you're either going to pick revenue or quantity and a time period, right? And in the case mm-hmm. of vehicle acceptors, you have year, make, model associated to it. So a bestseller for a Toyota might not be the same as a bestseller for a Dodge. And mm-hmm. so to make it that way, um, because, uh, I don't think anybody would sort by what, you know, sort by the product that Amazon makes the most money on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, like, it's just like, it's one of those things that sometimes happen in business for the spirit of profitability that really goes against the values or guiding principles of an organization. And sometimes if you don't have guiding principles to help shake that stuff out, uh, you wind up do good people wind up doing stuff that one could question. Um, you know, if you're going out to eat and a uh, you know whatever you 
get the wrong food and the, and the waiter, wait staff doesn't take care of you appropriately is because they don't feel empowered to do so. Well, what in the culture is causing them not to feel empowered to do so? Because uh, if you or I were the wait staff and someone got food they didn't like, we'd just comp them a meal, right? Well, right. if the wait staff right. doesn't take care of them in some sort of manner like that on their own, it means that there's probably a breakdown in values where the, you know, for some reason, um, oftentimes in a company, tribal knowledge and tribal experience, you know, the, the decisions that the management makes becomes this unwritten rule book that is compartmentalized. And that's why you sometimes get bad, bad decisions being made because they think that's what the leadership would do. And that might not be the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the book is full of like great examples of how you apply those guiding principles and how they actually lead to extraordinary initiatives. Um, what are your personal favorite initiatives that came out of the principles? Well, I think some of the, the, the learn more, earn more program, whereas CF reps learn more, they would be paid more, you know, going, you'd ask the question about the customer service, like really shaking out, do we want salespeople on the phone or just customer service reps? Mm -hmm. Well, if we want to deliver more to our customers at that time, we just felt like we needed to be helpful. We needed customer service people on the phone. If you wanted to buy something, we'd help you with that, find the best item for your lifestyle. And But if you have, if you're tracking individual sales and you put them on the wall, it's going to say it's important versus we learned to kind of track for CS reps, time available for calls and that kind of thing. Those kind of, because that's what we wanted is, is we wanted the phone answer. If someone did call, we wanted to answer fast and we wanted people to um, take care of the customer, which if you have call times monitored, then people are going to be short to get to the next call. Anyway, but the auto PO bot was one where uh, a, a huge percentage, about 95% of orders that came into the system were taking care hands-free, mm -hmm. meaning where they would come in and they'd automatically purchase and ship and the tracking be posted and the accounting would match up and get imported in and pay the vendor, et cetera. That was pretty slick um, mm -hmm. on, a, on a technology aspect. And I think just some of the uh, things we did as a company with good works for employees and for other things in the community. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, there's so many of them. Yeah, that, like, the book is, is like, chock full of, of examples there. And I love many of, the, of them, like uh, your uh, random act of kindness program, your Ask Me Anything initiative. I mean, there's a lot of, so to the listeners, just buy the book and, and read it. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, very inspiring. Uh, there's so many examples in there. Um, I, I think you're staying true to the, uh, to the humble uh, value as well, be humble value, because you're still very humble about it. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting initiatives in there. So um, one of the things um, that I, I enjoyed reading the book as well is, I mean, I think everyone understands that once you have those principles, you should use them when you hire someone new. But it's not always easy to put that into practice because how, how do you know if someone has the right values? You can ask it, but it's not always straightforward and, 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 and they can lie. And, and I like that in the book that you describe how you use those principles also to hire right people and that you even have a principles interview um, as a first interview, even before a skills interview. Um, 
Can you share maybe a couple of tips or, or how you did that principles interview? Yeah, I mean, I think initially when we started, we said, okay, we got these six principles. We want to hire for culture fit first, skill set second. And so we came up with some questions. And then over time, we got better at them. And even in, with the interview process, we wanted to deliver more to people. So we tried to be transparent to let them know, hey, you're going to go through a culture interview first. And if there's a culture fit, then we'll do a skill set interview second. You know, we try to make them fun and uh, be transparent about it where they were relaxed. So you get to know them a little bit better. But we started asking questions and, you know, like we would say for deliver more, you know, we want to deliver more to our customers, partners, employees. But we, the question we would ask would be share an experience that someone, a business, a family member, a friend delivered more to you, right? Mm -hmm. Can they spot it? Or, or we'd say, wow, you, you know, uh, share a time that, that someone, you know, or business wowed you. So you might get an answer like, well, I was at Walmart and I asked where, where the Kleenex was and the lady just walked right by me. And I was like, wow, right. That's their mm -hmm. definition of being wow. Um, versus the next person might say, Hey, yeah, for my 21st birthday, my siblings got me, um, a huge cake and threw me a party and, and brought in a whatever, you know, had some thing where they went above and beyond to give mm -hmm. them that experience. Right. And so even with uh, some of the, in, in the, uh, in the book, I kind of, our initial questions, we asked interviews and the inter people who interviewed. And then as we got better at it, we kind of came out with different questions and a different way to, um, rank the answers of what we were kind of looking for in the answer. So if you ask someone like share a time you've taken a risk or you ask a time where, you know, when's the last time they've given someone a compliment? What, what, Oh, okay. What was that? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, those kind of things to see, um, do they, are they wired for that? And then in the other aspect is, is, you know, there's some people that like, want to kick ass and they want to be a rock star, but we wanted people that kind of had the attitude of like, we win together or we lose together. Mm -hmm. You know, no rock stars here. And also even in the training process, everybody went through real truck basic training and would take a few calls on the phone and we would be transparent about that. So like, if you thought like, there's no way I'm answering the phones for a company even for a couple of hours, then real truck at that time wouldn't be a good place for you to work because if you're a web developer or if you're someone on the phones or in accounting, you would kind of go through real truck basics too. Mm -hmm. Because I just, I never wanted to work with people that thought they were too good to do something. Right. That's not saying like, that's not saying that there's probably at that time, there was better things for me to do than to shovel the snow on the sidewalk. However, if it needed to be done, it shouldn't be above me to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it really needed to be done and we're in a jackpot where um, I just never really liked the ideal of like someone saying that's not my job or, and of course, how you can get a gauge for that is just how someone treats uh, reception when they come in and how they treat other people that they work with, or I mean, that they interview with, you know, those kind of things where you can kind of get a gauge uh, for what 
someone thinks regarding the whole aspect of like being humble and which is really not about, it's really about leaving things better, passing on credit, you know, when something goes sideways, accepting responsibility, you know, um, catching people doing it right, complimenting others, you know, it's kind of the old aspect of, you know, if you want Christmas cards, you better mail out twice as many as you want. And I think same with compliments is like sometimes people get caught up in, well, I never give, I never give any compliments at work. Oh, really? Well, how many compliments have you given in the last week? You know, like the people tend to give compliments also tend to receive them more. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, you describe all of that uh, wonderfully in in the book. Um, One question, though, um, I mean, in the book, you you talk about a lot of special initiatives and, and, uh, I mean, somehow you may may say like, okay, it seems easy. You're a bit like real across at the time, uh, but when you're smaller, then it's not that easy because you need money to do it. Um, how how do you pay for all this cultural building uh, initiatives? Well, I mean, I think you save a little bit of money on advertising because mm-hmm. as you get really taking care of your customers better, which is going to come from from your employees being fun and happy, you're not going to have to spend as much. And I think you just do it little by little. I mean, I don't know that it I don't know that it requires a lot of money. I mean, it, obviously, you've got to get departments to spend some time on it each week asking questions about, you know, what can we do to, what is a department, what can we do to be more uh, transparent with customers internally, with our business partners, and then where are we falling short, getting that information out, trying to make some adjustments to it, making the time to have that meeting, you know, it costs a little bit, but it's not, I mean, I think, you know, my experience, uh, again, was we went, once we started getting the culture dialed in, you know, you, the, the, the years went from 12 million to 25 million to 42 million to like 68 million to over 100 million. I don't know. And we, uh, so it's hard to quantify that, but um, obviously you have to have a lot of things rocking. And again, even with that, getting biz rates, uh, platinum customer service award, which is uh, not a lot of people get that online at that mm-hmm. time. And uh, we're just making sure you're, I think it's a work in progress. You spend on it what you can, mm-hmm. right? And um, that obviously over time, some of those things got uh, budgets, but culture isn't just an HR thing. I mean, obviously it helps if you got the leadership on board, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but it's not just a, a, a new function of HR. I mean, it's it's got to be a company-wide thing, and then it's also a work in progress. If you're not, what oftentimes companies do is they, they bust out some values and a mission, um, and they don't ever ask any questions around it, and they just hope somehow people are going to follow it and use it. And the reality is, is, is that, if you don't nourish the culture, it will die, and tribal knowledge and tribal experience will dictate what your company does and does not do. You're either nurturing the culture, or I mean, a, a great example of that is like you know, every place has cultures, businesses, schools, departments. You follow me? 
uh, families, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I always talk about the New Orleans Saints in the, the States here where mm-hmm. at one time they were paying players bonuses to hurt players on other teams. It was known as gown, Bounty Gate Online. Mm-hmm. So somehow in the organization, it became totally cool to intentionally try to hurt other players on other teams and you would get a bonus for it, right? Which, wow. when you say it out loud, sounds ludicrous. Like, who the yeah, absolutely, yeah. They're all good people. I mean, it's not like there's a lot of bad apples in there, uh-huh. but it was in the pursuit of winning and profit at the expense of values, and it became totally acceptable for everybody in the organization that that was cool. Hmm. Right. And that happened with good people. So how does that happen? That happens because of culture. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you're either taking, you're nourishing your culture and it's growing in the direction that the values or guiding principles represent, or you're not nurturing it and it's growing in whatever values. I mean, it may be like if, if you have values that are, you know, hey, we want to have integrity and we want to treat employees well and we want to do this. But every decision you make is based on whether the company makes money or not, right? You're not mm-hmm. operating by, you might as well scrap all the values and just say, we exist to fucking make money. Excuse my language. <laughs> and because that, 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 that is what will drive everything um, often where, um, where again, sometimes you get uh, employees doing things that they would never do at home because they think they're supposed to do it at work and they don't want to lose their job yeah. because they need their job to keep their roof over their heads. And mm-hmm. so um, they're willing to um, sacrifice their own values to keep their job. And it's all being um, kind of perpetuated by the work culture at work. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the, um, and that's where sometimes you get weird uh, policies too, where um, uh, at, at a company, because of that same aspect is there's no really way to sort them out. Anyway, I mm-hmm. kind of went into a rabbit hole there. So let me try to get out of it. But uh, I mean, if you want to have a really good hearted company that, is growing and has purpose. Um, I think uh, spending some time nourishing, nourishing the culture is going to get you there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's going to be much more uh, rewarding. That being said, it is, it's just like anything in business. It's not necessarily going to e- be easy, but it's going to take some work, some, some passion, some energy, uh, all of those things. And, you, and it's going to be a work in progress. It's not a one and done. I mean, no. I think sometimes think it's a one and done it's a it's a work in progress there was mm-hmm. you know there's always things we're trying to improve or look at differently and so forth so yeah one thing i was wondering so you, you at the end you uh you sold the company how important were those principles when when you sold the company i mean for you so that you could be reassured that principles could still live on and for the buyer as well was it did it yeah was it one of the reasons maybe they wanted to buy your company did it increase the valuation of your company yeah, I mean, I think um, when I was looking to tell the business, I, I'd let the employees know 
which a lot mm-hmm. of times people don't do, but I let them know. I said, why? I was What I was thinking of is I wanted to sell because I thought my leadership was kind of tapped out and we needed to find some better people, a big brother type or a bigger company that to buy us to keep us going for years to come. And so, and I thought I found a company that uh, believed in our values and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I think, you know, you learn as you go. And so, uh, like all things, sometimes we might do things differently given, you know, like I've always said, I reserve the right to change my mind at any time based on new information and new experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what the intent was to find a company that really believed in the, in the, uh, the guiding principles. And at that time, the company who bought Real Truck, Truck Hero, had a good track record of like letting the businesses run kind of on their own and add their resources in a little bit. And that's not necessarily what happened in the real truck case, but uh, where you, with real truck, it kind of got a lot of, uh, I would like merged a couple of companies together and then kind of brought in kind of what I would say, kind of like corporate America to try to uh, run uh, the e-commerce aspect of it. And uh, it is what it is. And what I would say on that is that, you know, if you don't nurture the culture, it will die. Yeah. And um, it will be reflective in what your customers say about you, what your employees say about you, and uh, what your business partners say about you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what we were. Um, the hope was is to find a company that would keep nourishing the culture. And, cool. um, and are they still using the same guiding principles? No, uh, with the merging of the company, they kind of reinvented some of the guiding principles and mm-hmm. some things around. And so it's a much uh, different company today. Okay. All right. Uh, we, we, uh, we could probably go on for hours and hours now, uh, but we, uh, we went already over time. So um, before we go, I just want to make sure that people know um, how they can find you, um, uh, how they can learn more about you. Obviously, there's, there's the book. Uh, but, yeah, what's the best place for people to connect with you? Well, you can connect with me at redheadedrebel.com or scottbenz.com. The, uh, also, the uh, book Principles of Fortune is available online stores from Amazon to Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, so that's how you can connect up with me. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for being here, Scott. It has been super interesting. The e commerce excellence podcast is sponsored by Dexter.agency. We help e commerce business owners scientifically increase revenue without needing more traffic. Ready to discover a more reliable way to increase conversion and, more importantly, revenue? Register for our free training, The 5 Transformations That Double E-Commerce Profits, at dexter.agency webinar.